0: All right, if you would take a seat and uh, pull out your sermon notes, and you can open up to Romans chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Anyone doing any potty training right now? Let me see your hands. I happen to know there's a puppy being potty trained. We got some others. Okay. We're back in that mode this week, and uh, let me tell you, it is a ton of fun. You kind of forget um, just how good that is. So Thursday, just an exceedingly long day, one of those days at work, I came home and uh, walked in the house and immediately uh, began helping a first grader with some homework. So I'm sitting at the counter working through some kind of homework or other, and I couldn't see the rest of the body, but I saw my two-year-old there with sort of that strained look on his face. And uh, it's not in my you know, mode yet that we're back in potty training mode, so I'm kind of looking at Tate going, are you okay, buddy? And he's got that you know strained look happening, and I walk around the corner to see him, you know, pantsless, and um, and there he is doing doing his business. And he reached around and showed me what he had just made, you know. And um, for you first time parents or non yet parents, let me just tell you: here's the ideal response when you're potty training. Okay, great job. Now move six feet over and sit on this little plastic chair. That's where we do this, and real celebration. That's the ideal, Okay. Here's me. Whoa! Tate's pooping! And at this, I kid you not, it scared a little bit more out of the little guy (laughs) and landed on my daughter Riley's uh, school paper. so we did, we did get him over sitting on the little chair. Um, and, and as I go to return to do homework, my wife is in tears trying to tell me something. And I can't get what she's making out. And then she says this, the dog just ate the poop off the homework. <laughs> so, um, so this is my Thursday night. So. Uh, Yeah, if I'm ever smiling extra big on site, my daughter is discovering some of this, by the way, right now. Mom took a picture of the paper so it's saved, but you can imagine the excuse to the teacher. My dog didn't eat the homework, but kind of close, and you don't want to know the rest. Just trust me on this. This is growing up, right? And growing up is hard to do, and growing up is really funny, and growing up is kind of stinky, and growing up is challenging. And it's sort of all in this, you know, great big thing. And we all did this physically. Here's the truth. We need to grow up spiritually as well. So we have some spiritual babies in our midst at any given time. And I tell you, there's, there's, there's just this beautiful life-giving component to spiritual babies being born, just like there is physical babies being born. And spiritual babies need to grow up in Christ. Two key areas that a believer needs to, to grow up in as a baby, but then continue on, is in the area of knowledge and in the area of holiness. So what we believe, what we think, changing our mind to conform to Christ, and then our behavior, how we act, what we do with that knowledge. And here's the beautiful thing of being found in Christ, is that Christ begins to give us clarity in our thinking, does he not? Not? I mean, that's part of the mark of progress as a Christian. You just think, man, no way. The fleshly would have thought this way about this situation. Christ, thank you for giving me clarity where there once was fog in this. The second thing that, that, that Jesus does in our life is he begins to give us new passions. So we actually find ourselves, as we grow up in Christ, we actually find ourselves um, looking at things that, that used to be our pleasure as distasteful now. Now, that doesn't end this side of glory. We always wrestle with the flesh and wrestle with temptation. But that's a a great thing to look back on and say, wow, that is so disgusting, and realize, wow, that was me. And but for the grace of God, I would still find that appealing. And God, you've come and changed my passions. You've actually given me a hunger for things that are good and that are eternal and that are from you. If you are new to the faith, let me just tell you two key responsibilities of every Christian duties of every Christian, help you grow like nothing else. And they're as simple as this, Bible reading and prayer. You think about that as a conversation. Bible reading is God talking to us, and prayer continues the conversation of us talking to God. I'm reading a book by John Stott called Basic Christianity. Why does a pastor need to read Basic Christianity? Man, it is so good for a guy who's lived this since he was 17 to go back and just be reminded of some basic fundamental truths. John Stott gives some really good advice in this book. He says this. He says, as you read your Bible, when you go to pray, pray first about what you just read in the Scriptures. And here's how he put it. Don't change the subject. So if you're reading that day and you're reading all about God and who He is, and His character, and what His will is, and what His promises are. Pray about those things first. Don't change the subject to your list of concerns this week. Savor who God is. Talk to Him about that. Get to those other things, but don't change the subject. Conversely, if you're reading about you and and the sin in your life, don't change the subject in prayer. Pray first about what was just shown to you in the Scriptures. Repent from those things. Turn from those things. Um, Claim claim 1 John and say, God, I I receive your your cleansing, your forgiveness. I confess this sin and I receive your cleansing for this. Would you help me to put that sin to death? Last week, uh, if you missed it, Gria showed us where hellfire and brimstone preaching comes from. This is one of the texts. Here's the truth about hellfire and brimstone preaching it's biblical. It's a little unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it's necessary and biblical. It's also very illuminating. Today, through the text, I'm convinced God will speak to you about sin, about hypocrisy, and about legalism. Here's my challenge to you. Don't change the subject. As the scriptures are put forth, prayerfully, I I would just plead with you, church, pray first about the things that we talk about in, in, in this setting. And to allow God, whatever's revealed to you this morning, um, to, to, to investigate your heart. Pray and ask God, God, if there is any of this cancer that we're reading about in my life, would you expose that and help me put it to death in my life? And renounce it and be cleansed from it. Let me give you your first fill-in. And it's really, again, um, I know it's a struggle sometimes to sit and not be able to change the channel of a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> We're used to being able to swipe, click, you know, change pretty quickly. And if you zone in and out this morning, let me give you sort of a, a sentence nutshell of, of this morning. Examine what you depend on, because labels can lie. So if you're taking notes, examine what you depend on, labels can lie. In case you haven't noticed it, we've, um, we've had a pretty big week nationally. A lot has been on the news And one of the big questions on the hearts and minds of people is this. Can we trust the government? And in a week looking at can we trust the government, uh, the text is, is asking this question. Can we trust religion? You know, people often attack religion and sometimes find it surprising that not only as a Christian but as a pastor, I don't jump in and immediately defend religion. I'd let people attack religion, and sometimes I join them in attacking religion. I don't defend religion indiscriminately. Just as say I don't defend science indiscriminately or morality or a certain salesperson, and here's why. Because there's good and bad science, right? There's ways of doing things well or not. Science is the word knowledge. How about morality? When we start talking morality, I don't immediately jump in and side with those who are moral because I want to ask this question. Whose morality? I wouldn't defend morality indiscriminately. And then just getting really practical, how about salespeople in general? I've never been a salesman. That's not my job. It's never been my job. But I wouldn't defend or attack indiscriminately that as an entire industry. Are they liars or are they truth-tellers? Now, if you were to ask me about a purchasing thing that I have had, I can tell you my experience. This person was great. The whole process was fantastic. This person I would steer steer clear from. So it is with religion. Now, even when you boil it down to things like Christianity or Christians or God, it's first helpful to define terms of what we're even talking about. Here's what I've discovered. You can find much common ground with would-be opponents if you first define terms and figure out what you're talking about. What happens in discussions of, can you trust religion? That's a really, really broad question. Probably not all that helpful of a question until we hone in and, and discuss it more. When people say, well, Christians do this, this, and this. I might just say, well, what do you mean by that? What, you know, what's your idea of what a Christian is? Otherwise, I would find myself potentially defending sitting on one side of the courtroom, something that I totally disagree with. So defining terms is really important. Raise your hand if you've heard the term religious pluralism. Let me see if you, you can just raise I won't ask you to define it necessarily. Okay, so, so we live in a religiously pluralistic country. That is, that there there is not one dominant religion across the whole land with a tiny little fragments here and there. That that may have been sort of true in another era, but we live in a religiously pluralistic society. And someone who adopts the attitudes of a a religious pluralist would say this, that, that all beliefs have things to contribute, that none have absolute truth, and that we should all um, just kind of hear one another out, put each other on equal playing field, and all just get along. Have you seen the bumper sticker that says coexist with all the different symbols? That, in a nutshell, is sort of wrapping up this idea of religious pluralism. I bring that up because it's important, even as we say this question, religion, can it be trusted? Let's figure out what we're talking about. University professors are teaching an old parable um, that I think is intended to sort of make sense of all of this. You've probably heard it. It's actually from a poem from way back when. But it's the idea of six blindfolded men who approach and reach out to discover only one part of an elephant. Have you heard this before? So the, the one comes and, and grabs the, the tail and says, what we're looking at here is a rope. Another man comes to the to the side of the elephant and says, no, 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 this is, this is a wall. And then someone else is touching the ear and says, what we have here is a fan. And someone else is touching the leg and says, this is a great tree. And someone else is touching the tusk of the elephant and says, what we have here is a spear. And finally, the sixth person says, no, this is a giant snake. Because, of course, he's touching the trunk. Now, here's the moral of this story that I have heard applied to this. The moral is this, that none of us can see all truth. That all of us only see a part of the truth. And so the conclusion coming out of that is this. To see the whole truth, we must combine all of our perspectives. Have you heard this? Mash them together, take what's good from each, and then we'll have a more robust picture. That's one conclusion. A second conclusion is this. Therefore, no one can know the truth because it's relative to the individual? Even if you haven't seen the elephant, are you tracking with hearing this idea? Okay? Now, there's a fundamental problem to all of this, and that is this. When you are told this parable, ask yourself and potentially the person telling you this question, where does the person telling the parable see himself in the illustration? I mean, isn't it true that to even tell the story, it is told from a perspective that claims to see the whole big picture, right? To even be able to say, no, that that person only has a part of the truth, they have to have the box top to the puzzle to understand what they're looking at. That's called objective truth. Here's a better moral to the story. That objective reality... Truth, in this case an elephant, is in fact there. That really is an elephant that you're all touching and talking about. Another moral to the story, that truth, in this case an elephant, is not relative to each individual. Otherwise, we wouldn't know the blind men were mistaken. So to kind of say that a different way, you can't know someone is wrong unless you know someone is right. So someone holding the rope who says my way is more is better than the person holding the spear, a person with objective truth who sees it all is able to say actually you're both wrong, you only see a part of this. So question to the professor is this. Why do you think you have the blindfold off and are able to see objective truth when everyone else is only seeing a part? Now, of all the major world religions, at least three of them add a complex part to this illustration that isn't made allowed for, and that is this. What if the elephant can talk? They're blindfolded, but they're not deaf. What if someone says, it's a wall? He says, no, I'm not. I'm an elephant. You're just touching my side. Someone else says, I'm grabbing a tree. No, that's one of my legs. Here, I'm going to move it for you. Right? Three of the world's major religions, Christianity being one of them, says that God spoke. God reveals to us who he is. You don't need to grope anymore and wonder and guess at what you're looking at. God has made himself known. Pluralist storytellers believe everyone is blind but them. To believe that this is the way things are essentially is blind faith in the person telling the story. And we don't recommend blind faith in anything around here. Socrates said this, that the unexamined life is not worth living. Someone else said the unexamined faith is not worth believing. Here's what I want to do this morning because the text takes us here. I want to examine Judaism. Not in detail, not in depth, because that's not where the text goes. But I want to put Judaism under the spotlight because that's what the text is talking about. Can it be trusted? Now, you might be sitting here saying, I'm not Jewish. Why does it matter? If you are a Christian and name the name of Christ, know that Christianity was birthed out of, was morphed out of Judaism. God chose Jews. God chose the nation of Israel. Our Savior is not not unrooted. He is rooted to Nazareth, right? Right? And so it it behooves us. The second thing with that as a Christian is there are some clear parallels to, to watch out for even as we go through looking at Judaism. Now you might be sitting here saying, I don't have any faith, I'm a skeptic. Let me say this, if you label yourself a skeptic, let me let you know that whether you would admit it or not, you're not off the hook. Because all skeptics of one set of beliefs, catch this, are true believers in another set of beliefs. Do you follow with that? So I'm a skeptic about all religion. That means that you're a true believer in some very core key tenets. And you have taken the testimony of others. You have taken written documents. You have hopefully had some evidence that that lands you in a place to call yourself a skeptic. You know, some, uh, and this is particularly true, just kind of seeing this this week, uh, some people have invited America into their hearts Right? And they look to the leaders of America as their hope and their heaven and their rescue from hell. This is why, by the way, political discussion can take on religious fervor. Anyone see any of that this week? A lot of it, right? Whether you're on the winning side, the losing side, you're like, I'm not even sure if I've won or lost. There is, there is passion around this. Because they really are looking at their country in some way as their savior. Some people have invited themselves into their heart and they look to, to themselves to save. It may be from the hell of boredom, it may be from the hell of meaninglessness, it may be from the hell of loneliness, but they trust themselves. Religious amongst us in America and worldwide would say that they look to God, deity, some sort of spirituality for these things but if you kind of pull back and look at it, really there's similarities amongst them all. Today, Paul gets really clear and pointed. Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, remember that in verse 1 of chapter 2, he essentially shifted gears from talking about them and those godless people, right? That's the end of chapter 1, and he shifts it to, um, to talking really to the Jews amongst them. And that follows the first 16 verses. But here he gets really explicit. And you call yourself a Jew. Now, Jews were God's chosen people. They were given good gifts out of love from the Heavenly Father that we just sang to. But Jews were very self-righteous. And Jews were under judgment. And it happened when they took good things and they made them ultimate things. That's just a really simple way of describing idolatry that Tim Keller uses. Taking a good gift of God and making it an ultimate thing. Anytime you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, you are committing the sin of idolatry. That's what you sacrifice for. That's what you look for for pleasure. That's what you look for for your own sense of meaning and who you are. So what good things were the Jews holding on to and building on and trusting in? Pop quiz for your mind. I won't make you answer it out loud, but when you think Jew and the things that are most important to any Jew, two things ought to leap into your mind. One is the law. The Jews were the recipients of God's special revelation. We just saw in Romans chapter 1, God is making his will known to all people, right? And through general revelation, the stars and the skies and created order and all these things, he is revealing himself. But to the Jews, his special possession, he gives them special revelation. They have the written Mosaic law. Okay, So that was one thing they were clinging to and building on and trusting on and depending on. We're the Jews. God entrusted us with the law. Okay, That's one thing. Here's a whole second category. A second category of Jew is circumcision. So, law and circumcision, circumcision being that physical marker of all male Jews that defined them, that set them apart as a Jew. Here's what Paul is going to do. In love, Paul is going to dismantle these two false saviors precisely because he wants to see, he wants his Jewish listeners to see their desperate need for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they will see God. If you're not robbed of, of your own deficiency to save, you'll never hunger for something that can save you. If you don't think you're in trouble, if you don't think you're in need. Paul is going to erode these things that the Jews are putting their hope and trust in. All right, let's read the passage. I'm going to read most of it right now, and then uh, I'll pick a little bit of it later. Romans chapter 2, starting verse 17. But you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God? And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law? And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let me pause right there. Some ground we've already covered is this, that it's not enough to know God's will, we must do it. Last week, I wrote this in bold notes, bold handwriting on my notes, that the law exposes and has no power to save. So even if you don't subscribe to this moral code, you look at all the world's religions, there is some moral code. You say, well, I'm a skeptic. Remember, I don't have any religion. You have a moral code. If, you're, if you've invited America into your heart and that's your deal, then you're a good law-abiding citizen. That's your code. Here's what the law does. It has no power to save. It has massive power to expose this one fact. You are a lawbreaker. And even if you don't subscribe to the revealed revelation of God, that truth shuts the mouth of everyone. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. That you're a lawbreaker. If you're a good law-abiding citizen, you know you don't abide all the laws all the time. Not even close. And if you've broken it at one point, you've broken the law. You're a lawbreaker. So the law has power to expose. It has no power to save. Now, all these advantages that the Jews enjoyed were legitimate. The problem was this. They missed the point. Their distrust in the gift giver, right? They've put their trust. They depend on the gift. But their distrust of the gift giver and their fruitlessness sort of offset these things that they've been gifted. So here's the first thing that they come to. We have the law. And then there's this this list of examples that, that Paul kind of runs through. Problem is, the label of Jew, throwing around the God label of boasting in God, making this superior claim that we know the will and are able to approve what is excellent and all these things had created sort of a superiority complex, and it took them away from what God was intending to to have them do, which is help other people. And when you look at these first things, you get to the the final four, and because of this superiority complex, they come up with this sense about themselves that we're a guide and a light. Here's what's so insidious about sin. Sin. Is it true that Israel was to be a nation that would be a guide and a light to the nations? Yes. Write in your notes, Isaiah. Go read some passages of this picture. God said, here's the nation I'm setting up. So a legitimate claim is that the Israelites were supposed to be a guide and a light. How about a teacher and instructor? Of course. We've given the law to be a blessing to all nations. This has always been about all nations, Israel. But labels can lie. The call is to examine. Hey, teacher, give yourself a midterm. See if you're really accomplishing what's been given to you to do. What good are directions if you don't follow them? Being given the path to life is less important than walking the path of life. Look at verse 21 again. In verse 21, he sort of sets them up and he just undoes them with this sentence. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? And then he walks through, do you see the law here? He walks through some basic tenets of the Ten Commandments. Every Jew would have memorized this, known intimately what these things are. But as he shows, it's not enough to know the, the right thing to do, you need to do the right thing. This sentence of "Do you not teach? You know, you who teach others, do not teach yourselves." Kind of harkens to to Jesus's criticism of of a person who is trying to get the speck out of a neighbor's eye, all the while having a log in his own eye. Remember that teaching? Uh, so last week, my son came home from work, and he had a piece of fiberglass in his eye, and he was pretty troubled by that. His eye was all a big mess, and um, and so you know, my wife's there trying to get it out, and. You know, and being delicate and stuff. And if you ever have this happen, she discovered a great thing. Uh, thank you, Google, Doctor Google. Um, she took a Q-tip and kind of rolled the the eyelid back on the Q-tip, and at that point she was able to see. Oh, there it is. There's the speck. Right. Little pro tip for you, if you ever get fiberglass in your eye. Um, now, now, what if what if Becky was was just a mess and had goopy eyes and couldn't see, and she was coming at my son, Curran, to kind of help things out. Every rational human being says, you know, thank you. I'm just going to stick with water and trying to flush it out myself. I don't want you anywhere near me. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself. Get the speck out of your own eye, or the log out of your own eye, before you seek to help the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, by not actually living and responding to to, to the law, The Jews who were on a mission to help other people were actually hurting other people. And here's how. They were damaging the reputation of a good, good father. Think about this powerful truth. When I don't trust God's boundaries for my life, here's what I'm I'm saying. I don't trust my father in heaven for what's best for me. Every sin... Is is an exposing of your own heart that you know better and that God can't be trusted. What would it say for me as a father if my kids, if you were just to kind of look in on my family and you were to see, man, those kids don't trust that dad. Every time he comes near them, they flinch, they they run away, they, they get really serious, whatever. You would look at that and it would damage my reputation, would it not? The Jews, instead of being on their mission to help, which they were now failing at, were actually causing damage because they were causing people to run away from their only hope, which is their good, good father. Powerful stuff. This is why Paul's hitting this so incredibly hard. Next to the law of circumcision is the distinguishing mark of the Jew. I really liked um, Greer's thing from last week of not trying to picture hell um, I really just didn't want to uh, put an image up of this, but we'll just leave it there for for circumcision. Um, But Paul is pulling out from them the two most important identifiers they had. He's intentionally, lovingly eroding confidence in the fact that you've been given the law and that you're circumcised. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the law, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision. There it is, written code, law, and circumcision. But break the law. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So how important is circumcision to the Jewish nation? In Acts 15... We read that the Jews who were there, and Acts is a book that's sort of figuring out, uh, you know, after Jesus rises from the dead, all of the Jews who've been worshiping for centuries on, on Saturday change their, 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 their worship to resurrection morning. A massive shift. And now we're trying to figure out how Jewish does a Christian have to be? What parts are supposed to carry over and what aren't? And here's what's said at the very start of Acts 15, that without circumcision, you cannot be saved. This is how ingrained this was to the baby early Christians. And, of course, what happens is something that's called the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, basically you have Paul and Barnabas and Peter and other church leaders making a decision to say, is that true or not true? Are we going to carry on circumcision to all the Gentiles that we meet? Or is that something that is supposed to be let go? And Peter stands up and he says, we are cleansed by faith. That's something that is Old Covenant. We are not carrying that on. We're cleansed by faith. Because there's no work that can help save. So, circumcision, you have to understand, is just deeply ingrained in the Jewish mindset and worldview. And what Paul's saying here is that circumcision has value, but is void if you're not obedient. The outward label, the marker, becomes meaningless. Imagine for a minute uh, that you have a, a bottle and it has the right medicine for whatever ailment you have but it has no label that's choice 1 choice 2 is a bottle that has the correct label of what you need for the medicine but when you pop it open there's lifesavers inside right you would always choose the one with the the wrong with, with the with the non label right uh, because, because the contents are more important than the label and in fact mislabeling something does damage to someone because someone grabs that bottle and says, I'm covered. If I ever get sick, I know what I have. And you pop it open, there's lifesavers. There's now anger welled up in me because I was told a lie. This is why Paul is coming after the law, possession of the law and circumcision so incredibly hard. Further, he kind of puts forth a Gentile without the physical mark of circumcision keeps the law. Doesn't that highlight the meaninglessness of your religious ritual, and it becomes, in effect, uncircumcision? Now, what Paul's doing here, track with me, I know this is getting a little bit technical, but here's what Paul's doing. He's setting up a mock person. He's not saying that someone does keep the law and shines light on that, because no one can keep the law. The law doesn't have power to save. The law only has power to expose. But he's setting out this hypothetical picture of how that would condemn someone who has the mark of circumcision. Getting to the point of this, let me, let me tell you what the point is so you don't walk away confused. The point of hearing these things is not so get in shape and obey better, but rather repent and don't lean on your Jewish DNA or the rituals that you follow. Those are not Trustworthy things to depend on. Matthew 12, 41, I think it's in your notes, just you can look at the reference later, but Jesus talking says this, The men of Nineveh, the wicked, wicked people of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see his point? Jesus, the Messiah, raised up from the Jews, preaching to the Jews who have the very oracles of God, they've been entrusted with that. They're not repenting. Jonah, far less than the eternal Son of God, Jesus, goes and preaches to the wicked people of Nineveh, and they repent. It's a, it's a very similar similar parallel. Now think about who's writing this. We know a lot about Paul because he wrote a bunch of the New Testament. And this is a guy who's had much experience with externals and misguided speaking for God. Some of you were here for our Galatians series. In our Galatians series, the title actually highlights two main ideas of what Galatians is trying to get at. It forms the foundation of the book. The first is this. Paul wants to make absolutely clear, and it's unique to all those other writing, he makes really, really, profoundly clear in this book that says this that the message that I have is right from God. It is directly from the Lord. He spends two chapters on this one point saying this, my apostleship is legitimate. Listen to me, I'm a first-hand witness. The revelation came to me. I went from zealously persecuting this faith of the Christians to proclaiming the faith of the Christians. Here it is in summary, Galatians 1.1. Paul An apostle, not from men through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now an apostle is someone who is sent on a mission, on a task. And Paul had been an apostle from men. He had been given authority to go and work against Christians. Right, And now he's changed that, and he's from God. Paul was good at quoting this. He was good at quoting his resume. I studied under Gamaliel. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I've kept all these things. He's writing to people because he understands the mindset. Look, I was there. I've been given the law. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. On and on and on it goes. Bottom line with Paul is that he found something better. In the book of Acts chapter 9, you could say that Paul saw the light, right? He was blinded by Jesus of Nazareth, the one you're persecuting. And from that point on, he begins to change his tune. The second thing that Galatians points to, and both of these tie into our passage today, is this. That the message itself is that you are made right from God, as in you are made righteous, you are made whole, you are made correct from God, and no other way are you made righteous. Look what he says here that ties into what we're talking about. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will ever be justified. Here's the big point real jewishness real family of godness is not determined by physical birth by cuts on the skin or by adherence to a particular book it's trust in jesus christ and trusting him alone let me give you one old testament example of this kind of picture of this and one new testament example if you want to turn there you could turn to deuteronomy chapter 10 deuteronomy chapter 10 shows this God is not somehow shifting gears. And he used to give a bunch of external rituals and thought, well, that's not really working out. No one's keeping rituals. I guess we'll shift to something else. I want to show you explicitly. It's always been the way that contents are more important than labels. The condition of the heart is what God's, God looks at, not the exteriors. Okay, Here's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, above all peoples, as you are this day. Catch this next line. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. From there he goes on to talk about, about ministering and serving the foreigner among you, the dispossessed, the orphan. It's always been that God cares about the heart condition and that any external sign points to that which is always greater than the sign, and that is the actual thing. Here's Jesus affirming this in Luke chapter 11. Again, track with this how externals and internal heart, which one are weighted more. Here's Jesus speaking to that in Luke chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And Jesus said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean in you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, don't neglect the externals. God gives the externals for a very explicit reason. But it's out of order. It's out of whack. If you clean the outside of your cup, and the inside is filthy. You don't think God sees that? You don't think that's just plain dumb to do? Jesus is exposing the very same point that Paul is exposing here. So is religion trustworthy? Here's the answer. Not to save. Not to give you safe passage on judgment day. If it's not inward, all the externals in the world won't matter because contents always matter. Trump, the labels. I want to bring this home to us Christians, because I think the caution here is reader beware. As I studied this passage for the last couple weeks, I thought, man, it is so possible for me, as a Western Christian, to do to the Jews the very same thing Paul is condemning in the Jews, and that is to have a sort of superiority complex about how wrong they got it. Don't raise your hand, but some of you might be tracking with me even as we've gone through this. Like, how dense are they that they didn't see this? And doing that is the very same thing that Paul is kind of railing against. Look at verse 28 again, one last time. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. When I first began to be public with my faith, I was 17 years old. And all the friends I had grown up with weren't Christians, predominantly in my my neighborhood. Uh, But some of them had sort of a a tie to some sort of Christian church. One in particular was my friend Bjorn, and we worked together at a bank um, uh, through through college. And he would often say this. In fact, he, he just took great pleasure in this. If he would ever see me say or do or condemn something, he would say this. Would a a real Christian do that, Dave? And he knew just enough of the Bible, because he had been raised in church. He knew just enough about the Bible to write the buttons to push. And you know what? I hated it at the time. But it was so good for me. It was so good for me, because when you go public with your faith, when you put it out there, I'm a Christian, there's pushback, right? If there's never been pushback for you as a Christian, man, that's a huge caution. Be public with it. There's going to be pushback. Of course there is. And there were so many times when my friend was used as an instrument of God because I would say, no, no, a Christian wouldn't do that. And that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. And so our car on the way to Bank of the West became a confessional sometimes because we would just be doing life, and he would point out these things that he never would have pointed out had I not opened my, my, my mouth and said, I'm a Christian. Remember what we started with this morning? You call yourself a Jew? You call yourself a Christian? Let me do this. There's a passage at the end of Revelation that our family read not long ago that says, um, cursed, cursed be anyone who adds or takes away to the, to, the, to the words found in this book. I am not trying to change Scripture here, okay? But here's what I want to do. I want to read this text and bring it into how a Jewish mindset might have heard it so it lands on us maybe a little bit more heavy. Here we go. But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on the Bible and evangelize and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the Bible, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a BSF leader and a community group leader, Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? For baptism is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. Do you see the danger, Christian, that there are parallels that we have to guard against? Maybe in place of baptism, it could be church membership or I'm a deacon or I'm an Awana Awards winner, or whatever thing we would put in there to take a good thing and make it some ultimate thing that we then depend on as our approval to God. Let me wrap up our time with this. I put in your notes that we love truth when it enlightens us, but we hate it when it exposes us. If there's some truth from the text that is exposing something in you that isn't all that pleasant, don't change the subject with God. Carve out some time, maybe even as we sing in a moment. Carve out some time later this afternoon to say, God, I need to talk to you about some things. I don't want to change the subject. I don't want to have any wicked way be in me. As we look at what we do and what God does from this passage, here's what we do examine your foundations. Examine what it is you really depend on. Is it baptism, church membership, church attendance, ministry, fruit? Is it just tradition? Gosh, my family's always been Christians. We're to have a sober judgment of ourselves. We're capable of doing just as the Jews were in this passage. Along with that is just to simply live the life. Pay attention to your heart and not just your theology. Not just your service record, what you do for God. Pay attention to the condition of your heart. You know what fosters this so well is community groups. In community groups, we take a larger group of people, we break it down into a smaller group of people, and we engage with each other. When people's reactions to their life circumstance that week, they come off of a bad day at work and their reactions are, are in such a way that reveal wickedness in the heart. Then brothers and sisters can be there to support and say, we need to pray for them. That, that's not right. And we do that for one another by encouragement as well. Secondly is to seek and savor your approval from God and not from man. Legalism has tied to it this idea that by keeping all of my things, I can somehow make myself acceptable to God. And furthermore, I want to make sure I do these things so that everyone else is watching. Are you seeing this? Right? I'm tipping. All the staff know that I'm putting some tip in here, right? That's legalism. And Jesus railed against legalism. It's exhausting to be a legalist. Lay it down. Lighten your burden by not worrying about others' opinions of you. Seek and savor the approval we have from God. There are so many songs that we sing that lighten my load every single week, saying, God, you're crazy about me. Whether I've had a good week or a terrible week, in my assessment, that hasn't changed my status as being your son this morning. What does God do? God sees clearly. He's not fooled by lip service, by outward markings, or anything. Remember Jesus when he's there with his disciples and two people come in to give at the church and the one gives a large sum seemingly and the the widow's might, right? She comes and gives just a tiny portion but it happened to be just a massive sacrificial gift. And Jesus takes that opportunity to turn and basically say, look, don't, don't be impressed by these external things. That woman right there, of everything we've seen today, she's given more than anyone. God sees the heart. God sees what's going on in our heart. Let that be enough. Finally, is that God saves utterly. Isn't it gloriously awesome to know that we don't help? Some of you are incredibly disorganized people. If your salvation mattered, that you, like, followed the rules to a T in the right order, man, you would be hosed at the very beginning. God doesn't need our help to save. That is amazing news. Let me have the band come on up right now. As we sing this song, make it a prayer. And as you pray, don't change the subject. Sometimes in worship through song, the best thing you can do is remain quiet. Sometimes letting the words wash over you is an important discipline. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for just even complex passages that seem to speak just to a first century Jewish audience that stirs our own conscience. Jewish or not. Religious or not. God, I pray for all of us in this room that we would be seekers of truth. That we would have the guts to look at things as they really are. God, that we would examine what it is we believe. We could say we believe in the right things and not even have it be examined and so it's, it's building on sand. God, thank you for teaching us for loving us and being patient.